my fellow plebs, River is setting a new standard in Bitcoin. At river.com, you'll pay zero fees when you dollar cost average. Truly the best way to build your Bitcoin wallet. All Bitcoin at River is held in secure cold storage with 100% full reserves. There's no need to wonder what's happening behind the scenes. Your Bitcoin is your Bitcoin to withdraw at any time. Additionally, River lets you make Bitcoin payments via the Lightning Network, offers a Lightning integration for developers, and allows you to mine Bitcoin directly to your River account. River has a level of service that is unheard of in this industry, including phone support, private client advisors, and the ability to designate beneficiaries to inherit your Bitcoin wealth. River has become the premium name in Bitcoin that anyone can easily access. Sure, you have a place to buy Bitcoin, but have you tried River? See and feel the difference at river.com and the River iOS app, the preferred partner of Bitcoin Magazine. My fellow plebs, today's podcast is also brought to you by Moon Mortgage. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage makes it possible to materialize your assets into real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investments in owner-occupied property. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will also be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.com today to register and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. What's up, Nolan? I love life, team. How about you? Same. We love life, too. Life is great. Yep. Another great day to be a Bitcoiner. Nolan, thanks for coming on, man. We're really looking forward to this. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it all day. We got, awesome. we got a lot of news to share. The, the world is changing real quick. Yeah, only Bitcoiners. I... Only Bitcoiners have our head straight. I'd like to think so. There's a there's a lot to talk about. Nolan, you do a daily show called The Breakup where, you know, you dive into a lot of the topics that we're going to talk about today. But really kind of like the the big kind of theme of the show is this idea of navigating the transition from kind of a fiat driven world to a Bitcoin driven world. Yeah, I mean, that's mostly what we try to cover every day. It's a confusing period. I think we're, we're going through one of the biggest changes in history. Some people say it's as big as the change 500 years ago when we experienced the separation of church and state. So this is sort of like, you know, we use the fourth turning frame pretty often where you could look at American history in 80-year cycles that would lead us back to World War II, and then 80 years before that, the U.S. Civil War, and 80 years before that, the Revolutionary War, and so on into Anglo-American history. But there's an even bigger frame, and that is the separation of money and state. And a lot of the reason why Bitcoiners have been the quickest to adjust to all the changes that have really started with the financial crisis and the creation of Bitcoin. So we've adjusted faster, and that's what I try to share on the show every morning. Yeah, and something that really stands out when I listen to you speak, Nolan, is your perspective on media. Like when we're trying to contextualize what's happening in the world, it's so hard in today's day and age with 
all of these, I guess, partisan news outlets, some that could potentially be manipulated, as we've seen, you know, during the Twitter files unveiling. And I'm sure I know you spoke recently about the director of the CIA appearing on Fox News. But, you know, these these media of exchanging information are rather captured. And I think Bitcoin represents a way where we can hopefully get our head around what's going on in the world in a more honest and open way. And so uh, something I'm looking forward to speaking with you about today is, yeah, how to contextualize media and understand kind of the games that are being played behind the scenes. And of course, you know, where, where the Bitcoiner mindset fits in there. Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I, I take the psychological because both U.S. dollars and the fiat system are based on a psychological commodity. But let's also not be mistaken, Bitcoin is a psychological commodity, right? When people say there's no intrinsic value or whatever, well, the value is psychological. It has certain benefits just by its nature. And the main contrast between those, that nature really, is that in fiat, you know, you don't have to look further than what they say it is. Fiat means by decree. And therefore, most of the propagation of that system is decree, it's words, it's definitions of words. And that's why we follow what the central banks say with all kinds of angst and worry and everyone saying, well, Powell sniffled at the 32nd mention of interest rates. Therefore, we should all dump a bunch of bonds, right? So because everything is through this sort of divination and wondering what the marketing behind the psychology says, it's much more integral to the system. Of course, the contrast is Bitcoin simply is countable, right? We can count it. We know how much there is and it's based on engineering. So it's kind of eliminated the need to listen to the marketing. And in the end, what we understood as Bitcoiners is information laundering information laundering is more devastating to the overall consistency of the system than any accusations of money laundering (laughs) and Bitcoin and all that stuff. So the information laundering part is what we try to follow really closely. And, and that's the frame that I use, you know, if, if you, if you go into what, and there's a really interesting connection, I guess you could say between Bitcoin and America And it comes from the psychological aspect, right? We're talking about psychological commodities and and just the sort of wheel of history, right? So America has this ego, right? And a shadow, just like every person. A country has it and Bitcoin has it. People have it. Bitcoin has it. You know, if you listen to Jordan Peterson. We're we're getting deep. We're getting deep there and I love it. Well, I'm going to kick off the show. So thanks for getting us to the six minute mark. Mm Yo, you are tuning into Cosmic Bitcoin. Nolan, let's get into it. Do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, how you're thinking through programming Bitcoin 2023, and then we can dive into some of your mental models? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, it's an energy show, right? The Ethereum folks and all these crypto folks, right? We're the ultimate contrast to not only those events, we're the counter program to WEF, right? We have a completely different way of envisioning the future. And that, that's really where, you know, when I cover the psychological engine contrast, like what, what commercial relationships are propagated by fiat, what is created by it, what's the result of commercial relationships formed in the US dollar, petrodollar world versus the stuff we're designing, the stuff we're creating, and the stuff we're projecting into the future and propagating into the future. 
that's really what the show is all about. So it covers everything that you can do with money, right? You can trade money, you can save it, you can earn it, you can invest it, and you can share it and spend it and, and in this way contribute to the actual network growth. So the show covers all those events, all those things, but especially on energy. We are the anti-ESG show. Right? We think ESG is another one of these psyops. It's another one of these parasitic excuses to pay for more financial engineering. Right? We're definitely not interested in the further propagation of financial engineers. We're very interested in focusing on things like time preference and why someone would want something of better quality and, and all the ramifications of that. So we cover energy heavily on the program this year. We're going to be covering... and and really energy finance. So it's not just mining and how we can get a little bit of energy on the side if we use a little ca you know, captured energy for methane burning and flare burning and that kind of stuff. We're going much deeper into financing of energy and the reconstitution of the electrical grid with Bitcoin at the center of the finance. So that's something you're going to hear probably for the first time in the world played out and, and explained in multiple levels by the people who are actually doing it. So people who understand that... <clears throat> You know, Toshi's invention doesn't just touch on financial engineering. You know, I've, it's sort of my 10 years professionally in the space this year. And a lot of what I've predicted and put into events really just had to do with human capital and observing them peel off professional people peeling off of their industry and moving into Bitcoin. And of course, this started with the cryptographers in the early days when it was just developers and those kinds of things. And then the political people got involved. That's how I got involved originally, was just seeing it from a political point of view, saying, whoa, the answer is here. But immediately in those years, 10 years ago, you saw real Wall Street people abandoning their careers because they had one look at what Bitcoin was. Now, they might have got diverted by some coins and some making money and some DeFi or whatever the heck's going on or ICOs or more financial engineering. But of course, those were all uh, diversions for people. Those who really stuck with it, we saw there's the, the top quality people leave Wall Street. And we saw immediately after you saw the artists, right? You saw the creators, the creatives with the rare Pepe's originally. And that energy is coming back to Bitcoin now with the ordinal thing and all of these talented creators moving into Bitcoin. But the new industry that I see being influenced, and you're already starting to see it in sponsors of the show, you're starting to see it in people who are interested, are the energy folks. So we're getting more and more people, and our financial literacy is already really high, but our energy literacy is even higher. So we probably stand out in the world with our audience being the most financially literate coupled with being the most energy literate. And that's what makes the show the actual counter program to Ref and all of these other phony baloney shows that just want to tax you and, and, and leave you a little confused while they separate you from your money. So, I mean, what you're seeing right here is, is you know, I think it is an event that needs to be endorsed by Bitcoiners because this is the mainstream countercultural push. I know I guess saying mainstream and countercultural are a little bit of an oxymoron, but really, you know, it's a massive show. It's one of the biggest shows on the planet when it comes to finance, definitely one of the biggest on the planet when it comes to energy. And but at the same time, it's a Bitcoin bear market. How how can this be and and why should Bitcoiners get excited about coming to Miami in the bear? Well, I think psychologically, again, right, remember the first event on earth 
coming out of the lockdowns in 2021. I mean, on our whole planet was Bitcoin 2021. And the reason why Bitcoiners were the first to meet in massive numbers, you know, over 10,000 came that year. And again, no one else had met on planet Earth, right? No one had the guts to. Bitcoiners, I think, had the frame to adjust to all the troubles and change that happened in 2020. But the change and the troubles haven't really slowed down, right? We're having to constantly adjust. Things are changing so much quicker than ever before. And Bitcoiners continue to be the folks who predicted where we are the most accurately and therefore have had the least amount of adjustment. And our show will continue to reflect that. We're going to continue to reflect, you know, here's my thought on predictions, right? Bitcoiners, because we've predicted a lot of what we've seen in the world today, it's a, it's a, it's sort of proof that our worldview at the time of making these predictions is the most accurate. Because if your worldview at one time is accurate enough, it actually helps you with the otherwise magic trick of correctly predicting the future, right? Because no one can really predict. The best you can do is have a good assessment and a thorough and well-reasoned explanation of the whole world around you. And that should give you the best possibility of predicting the future. And Bitcoiners continue to have that. So psychologically, we remain the most consistent people throughout all of COVID, right? We've had the least amount of, oh, changing our entire worldview to fit things, right? We, we were unconvinced about the so-called follow the science, right? Because follow the money predicts better than follow the science. If you go back to 2019, for example, a lot of Bitcoiners were already complaining that the Fed Reserve was using this repo market, right? The lending, overnight lending between banks, and the, the, the Federal Reserve and commercial banks. And of course, everyone laughed at Bitcoiners in September 2019. Oh, you idiots. You guys don't know. It's technical. It's so complicated. And we said, well, either it's going to stop or it's going to grow massively. And of course, COVID came along and it grew massively. So we predicted correctly, even though we were laughed at, mocked and all that stuff. So I think there continues to be an attack against Bitcoiners just psychologically that we're out of touch and our thing is broken and, oh, we lost money because it went down one year. But nevertheless, psychologically, we remain the most accurate predictors of where we're at in the world today. And I think all the events of this year really provide a contrast for Bitcoiners to be right again. Of course, the whole crypto meltdown is something that we predicted, right? So although the price might reflect a wide, perhaps even algorithmic or at least, you know, program trade de-risking from some of the institutions that might have held Bitcoin and it was felt at the spot price for Bitcoin and things like that, our worldview hasn't changed. And everything that happened with FTX and all that stuff really confirmed what we think needs to happen for the world to come to peace again and for World War III to end. And we're probably the only financial event, energy event that actually has like a peace plan as part of our agenda. We're going to be talking about peace. And it's not through some convoluted diplomacy or anything like that. We just think that the place Bitcoin can hold in energy markets psychologically, again, as a reference rate for energy, could pave the way to global peace in the short term and could lead to really short-term hyper-Bitcoinization. I think our show is the only one that's going to show a credible path where within a year to five years, I mean, either the U.S. presidential election in 2024 or the following election cycle, you're going to see Bitcoin as the main subject 
and it will be involved in the very moving pieces of World War III, which are the psychological and economic aspects of the warfare, right? World War III is a psychological and economic war. That is the battleground. And Bitcoin is both of those things and is therefore the most relevant, most interesting, and probably has the most potential of wrapping up the entire World War III experience and ending it and, and leading us to a new era. Let's jump into, you know, World War III. I, I remember, I think it was like last uh, last November, I was at a Friendsgiving. I would characterize these friends as, you know, San Francisco, yuppie elites, well-educated, doing well in the existing system. And, uh, you know, one of my best friends who was there is like, hey, you know, what are you, th- what are you seeing right now? What are you thinking about? And I was like, you know, we're living through the beginnings of World War III. And he just looked at me as like, come on, don't bring that shit in here. Like, you know, let's let's relax. Like, why do you got to get so heavy on me? Talk about World War Three. You know, on your show, you talk about it as being very different than the previous two world wars. Yeah, I, I think the belligerents of World War Three are really, in, in some ways, the remnants of World War Two. In that we created our modern idea of the nation state out of World War II, right? The the role of the president, for example, that's a made up job, right? It's like it just is made up. It was different in different eras and it was practiced differently in different eras. And it's kind of just a living embodiment of how the job is practiced. Now, it was practiced in a certain way, which might have been good to win World War II, but entropy sets into all systems. And what we were left with right now has turned into sort of what the sovereign individual predicted, right? The breakdown of the nation state. And when you start to think of the separation of money and state, what you have is countries themselves, the the corporate organization that is a country, that is a nation, like USA Inc. versus the people, right? The myth that was propagated after World War II was that freedom came from democracy, Right, that, that these democratic systems and then fighting for these democratic systems is what brought us peace. Now, maybe in the previous era, it was different political systems that were oriented in certain ways. You had fascism and communism and democracy and which of those as they fought it out was the winner and was able to propagate its system further in the world. Now, of course, you know, democracy was sort of on on its last legs before America was able to pull out a win in World War II, a very convincing and, and almost easy win if you if you are able to squint and look past the, the human sacrifice that went into it. America itself had the capacity to win the the industrial capacity. But here's what happened. At the end of the war, you know, remember what Eisenhower warned us about the military industrial complex. Well, a few things happened at once. So Eisenhower worked really closely with Sigmund Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays, and he wrote a book called Propaganda. And he's the one who actually pivoted the word propaganda to public relations because of what the German Nazis had done to the the specter of the word propaganda. It became a, a naughty word. So he invented the word public relations. And he invented the system of information laundering. You know, anytime you see nine doctors out of 10 prefer this toothpaste and all that kind of stuff, he's the one who knew that appeals to authority were the ideal method for information laundering. And a decision was made between Eisenhower and Edward Bernays back then that America, in order to win and to continue its position after World War II, 
could demilitarize, but they would have to keep their industrial capacity ramped up. And the reason or the way to keep industrial capacity ramped up was to turn Americans into consumers. So from the 1940s, Americans were sort of progressively hypnotized into being consumers. And this took a lot because coming out of the Depression and the frugality of that period, Americans had been used to going without or, or living in a, in a modest way. And all of this went out the door once the television advertisements, radio advertisements, all the inducements to consume began. And cool stuff was invented, too. Let's not forget, you know, Corvettes and you know, motorcycles and all the cool stuff that came after World War II to America were bikinis and all the fun stuff, right? New Kodak cameras and transistor radios not far off, right? Only about 11 or 12 years away and microchips to come soon later. So there was plenty of stuff to sell. And But here's the thing where it all went wrong, right? We were supposed to keep the industrial capacity to keep the consumer machine going or vice versa, keep the consumer machine going to keep the industrial capacity to pivot to war in case it was needed. We ended up getting the two shittiest deals where because the money itself ended up breaking apart, the dollar being the reserve currency in the system broke apart and became this dominant global currency. Well, it became easier to use the privilege of the dollar. So we just offshored manufacturing. We kept the war machine running. We never shut it off ever. It just never shut off. Everything that was running to win World War II is still running at full capacity. That, that's the best image I can have of what went wrong at the end of World War II. We left the aircraft carriers running. We left everything running. <laughs> we didn't shut the bureaucracy off. We didn't shut any of it off. We just kept it all running. And it's exhausted. The whole system is exhausted. And now that it's exhausted, it has to survive. And it's got to use narrative. It's got to use the same tools that got us there, right? The same Edward Bernays public relations stuff to get us there. The same appeals to authority. And now we're coming up to this idea that the myth that propagated this system, that democracy is what gives you freedom, is, is all that's kind of left. And... This idea that Americans are the good guys, you know, of course, America is a great place. I love America. It's, it's amazing, right? I'm, I'm a huge pro-America guy, but I love its dexterity. I love that there's different states and that there's different options and that there isn't one formula and that there's competing ideas. And I think, although it looks like chaos right now in America, all the signs of a new era are apparent and Bitcoiners are living already in this future, right? I, I don't think we're that even interested in stories about Ukraine and all this other stuff. I'm there to get people to not pay attention to it, right? And explain why you shouldn't be anxious about Ukraine or China or any of the other stuff that people are trying to get you stressed out about, right? And on the other end, you know, I'm there to say, like, you know, if someone is telling you to be worried about all the trans stuff, you know, there's real stuff there and real crimes and real crazy stuff. But, you know, you've also got to just not worry about the psyops that are being induced every day to get you to be anxious and upset and angry and all those other things. Right. There's already the post-World War III Bitcoin standard. People are already living on it. People are already living that life. So I'm there to sort of show you the contrast and, and contrast those things every day. Because again, you know, World War III is a psychological and economic battlefront. And, and that's what we're going to talk about at the show in Miami. And that's what I talk about in my show each morning. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winner in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. 
the largest Bitcoin conference in the world, returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. I love like the depth of psychological history you went into there. And something that really stood out to me was you talk about, you know, entropy catching up with all systems. And when I think about, you know, institutions, Western institutions kind of succumbing to this entropy, what they need to do to maintain their status and stature is to work harder and harder just to fight against that ever increasing you know, amounts of disorder within the system. And how I kind of think about that idea is, I think about, you know, we need to, these institutions need to ramp up the psychological operations conducted against their con constituent parts. And that is the individuals that inhabit these systems. And I don't know if this kind of brings anything to mind for you, but when I try to think about the transition from fiat to Bitcoin, I kind of see, perhaps this is like paralleled by uh, the dollar milkshake theory, but essentially these systems are going to do everything they can to hold on to power, but it's going to get to a point where they can no longer do so and the system will, will fail. And so, yeah, I just, I guess top of mind for me is trying, perhaps I'm a bit worried about like, what is that going to look like? Like, what is the extent to which this method of top-down control is going to be employed in order to keep the system solvent? Because at, at the end of the day, like people talk about hyperinflation is, is really a psychological event more than anything. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I don't know if that, that sparks anything in you, but that's just what comes to mind for me is like, how far can this go before enough is enough? Well, here's here's the here's the connection between Bitcoin, nation states, America. It was this is actually Whitfield Diffie, the inventor of public key cryptography, who first said this. So I copied him and I interviewed him about this years ago because I thought it was that interesting. It comes from 2017, and he was at the cryptographers conference in Las Vegas, and they were talking about Bitcoin because it was that you know second or third depending on your epoch counting big pump in the price and everyone was paying attention. And he was there with, you know, some of the big cryptographers of the world, Moxie Marlin Spike, the phony from Signal, and here and Revest, and some of the people who would invent some of the more who invented some of the more important cryptographic tools and protocols and primitives in the world. And they were kind of laughing about Bitcoin. You know, Shamir was saying, ah, oh, you know, if the kids would just decide if they want to be a cypherpunk movement, okay, or if they want to be the new reserve currency for the world, okay, but they got to decide. And Woodfield Diffie said, well, hold on a second here, right? America in its entire history has gone through these cycles of being an imperial power and a revolutionary force. Of course, America in its history was started as a revolutionary force and there was a great disappointment in America coming out of World War II that it abandoned its revolutionary zeal and embraced hegemonic imperialism as the unipower of the world or the sole superpower of the world. And, and of course, the world has never seen a you know, first place to second place gulf that America enjoyed, like most prominent, powerful country in the world, to second place. 
that America enjoyed between the end of World War II and now, right? Remember, for a few years after the Second World War, America was alone with the nuclear bomb and everyone else was on their knees. Europe was finished. Russia couldn't fight. China had a civil war. Japan was neutralized completely by the bomb itself. No one was there to stand in front of America, right? And, and indeed, it did perhaps succumb to some of these hegemonic and, and imperial forces, it looks like. So what Whitfield Diffie said was, you know, America was always these things, and it never had to choose. It can oscillate between being an imperial power and a revolutionary force. And what he said right away was Bitcoin is the same. Now, if you take that sort of Jungian psychological model, right, that we have an ego and we have a shadow, right? So when you think of that entropy, it's really just cycling between those two identities of, you know, revolutionary force, which is America's best idea of itself, and its imperial tendencies. Now, Bitcoin has a very similar oscillation, right? When we say Bitcoin is a peer-to-peer network, the peer doesn't come easy. Right? You're not just a peer because you say you are. It's not how it works. Right? The, the word peer itself comes from what we understand as the lords in England. Right? The first peer-to-peer network to put the king to the sword were the lords of Magna Carta in 1215. Right? That, those were peers. They still call each other peers. Right? The, 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 the other people are not their peers. They are themselves peers. And of course, Bitcoin has this part too. Right? Bitcoin is both cypherpunk and global reserve currency at once. But here's the thing. When you think of Jungian psychology, there's three big parts of dealing with your shadow. And they are the following. Encounter, right? Merger and assimilation, right? And that's how you, that's how you get rid of the shadow or at least get rid of the shadow is not right, the right way to put it because the shadow will change and, and you'll continue in the cycle. But at least to process the shadow. Now, what we understand is if you don't process the shadow, you get Joe Biden as president, right? You get like a, a <laughs> like, do you believe he's the leader of the free world? Of course, it's absurd to say the two words together, right? That, that this man is the leader of the free world. It's, it's completely ridiculous. And, and it's laughable just at its sight, right? And so here's the interesting thing. With fiat, with the money itself, what ends up happening is there is no feedback. You, you can't have encounter because you don't know where it's going. It's a slime that oozes one way or the other and can be in the same way the money is created by words. Words can be used to mislead, misidentify, to obfuscate, to confuse. It really underlines the, subject, the subjective nature of argument words themselves. And Bitcoin, simply by allowing you to count, that's it. It, it allows you to count. And because of that, you can actually have this encounter, right? Encounter, it's counting. You can actually have an encounter between ego and shadow and actually process huge psychological societal problems at once. And where I think it's all headed is just this very simple reference point. And this is the difference between hyperinflation and hyperbitcoinization. You know, hyperinflation is a bummer. Hyperbitcoinization is super fun. And what it looks like, I think, is the following. Right. America abdicating its primal role as reserve currency, rules based order and all that stuff. When it took the Russian money at the beginning, took their reserves, at the beginning of the Ukraine thing. Now we're going to find out more. Maybe we don't know about the viruses and who's doing what and what the CIA has been doing and who's been funding because we have no feedback. loop. We have no idea 
what is going on in the world. We don't even know how much money there is. It's just all over the place. And because it is actually debt based, they just create more of it constantly. So we never have had to look at our problems. That's why now I, I, I'm not a fat shamer. I would never fat shame anyone on my show. We, we talk a lot about diet on the show, but that's why you ended up listening with healthcare, you know, secretaries, authorities that were unhealthy people because there's no feedback in the system. It's all just word thinking. It's all just dictate and decree. There is no psychological encounter with our shadow. So here's what it looks like, right? America abdicates its position. We already hear all these rumors that the Chinese are trying to create a new reference rate for energy. Remember that that was the whole point of the petrodollar, right? That's why Muammar Gaddafi had a golden gun shoved up his ass and was blown away and tortured, right? Because he was going to sell oil for something else besides dollars. And, and this was a big no-no for many, many years. You can agree with it or not. There might have been good reasons. Who knows? We're not here to talk about those. But the site for a new venue for energy and a new reference rate and new prices there, the Saudis have said they're going to participate in one of the biggest slaps in the face that the United States has ever received. Saudi has said, yeah, we'll sell it for whatever. We don't care, right? And so, but that shitcoin is going to fail, right? So when I say World War Three is governments versus people, it's all the governments. It's the CCP it's the Russian government, it's the US government, it's the very idea of creating an organization in this way and, and what it ends up amounting to. So in the end, I think all that needs to happen is the following, right? That energy becomes reference in Bitcoin. If Bitcoin becomes the main psychological reference for energy in the world, you're gonna change almost everything overnight. And you're going to have a hyper-Bitcoinization event. It doesn't mean everyone is going to be holding Bitcoin and buying coffee with it. And that's hyper-Bitcoinization. What it does mean is that the most vital industry for the world, energy, is going to have a neutral reference point. In the same way that water is used in the metric system or, or to, to create the metric system, the properties of water created the metric system, right? It's just here it, here it boils, we'll make that 100, it freezes, we'll make that zero. And from there, you get kilometers and meters and liters and everything, right? Because of the consistent nature of the properties of water. And that's all Bitcoin needs to be, the consistent properties through which we can have a psychological encountering with our governance systems. And that's what the separation of money and state looks like. Right. Once you can have that feedback loop, once you can actually start A-B testing success in government and actually have a feedback loop where you can punish failures and change course if something's not working, we, we do none of those things now. We're not even close to capable. We reward credentialism and, and sort of do our best. And it's not going to make it any longer. And now we see what happens when you are energy illiterate, like the Europeans, right? That, that's exposed all of their wealth, all of the money they've saved over the years is worth nothing because they've made terrible choices to make Greta happy and whatever else. And so that's our big opportunity right there, right? That, that's how World War III ends, just a better reference for energy. And, and that can allow us to even gauge how, how much we can stand, how much we're gonna be able to put up with in, in the United States with these corrupt PSYOP governments. More and more people are ignoring them, and that's a good sign, right? More and more people are sort of laughing and saying, like, I'm, I'm, 
what a clown world, right? And and credibility is at an all-time low. The Twitter files have exposed so much of the collusion. And bit by bit, we're going to have this encounter. But we're not going to get anywhere until we actually get into the money part. But it looks closer than ever. So in, in your show, you talk a lot about the economy as a psychological engine rather than, you know, I, I guess, you know, there's a lot of other mental models for an economy. A lot of it kind of... <laughs> you know, harbors around trade and assets and real goods. Can you kind of explain why you think of the economy a little bit differently? Well, it's, you know, you can take the the Keynesian, you know, it's, it's one of the weird things that an ironic thing that Bitcoiners love macroeconomics when there is no such thing in Austrian school economics, right? There's no such thing as macroeconomics. There's politics, and there's economics, which are choices that you make with your money. They call those in the Keynesian school microeconomics, and then they call politics macroeconomics. So what I say is, even though there's numbers, the whole thing is taught as if, you know, finance and, and you know, that's just from one, we'll, we'll talk about trade in a second. But, you know, finance and all, personal finance, anyway, all of it is taught in a kind of mathematical way. And you got to know how to use a spreadsheet and a balance sheet and... You got to be able to add stuff now. Although we're dealing with numbers, we're not really dealing with math, and we're, we are dealing with these psychological parameters. Let's say now, the problem with the system as we have it right now, with dollars being what they are, and, and the end of the line entropy, and the incapacity that we have to have a, a, a you know positive vision of the future, that really has all seized up and short-circuited in dollars because it is just arguing about projection and different like prescriptions and stuff like that. So that's why you see all this confusion. No, it's going to be this way or it's going to be that way. And trade won't work if nations don't have these treaties and all these things. But what we saw in the end was, you know, take the car industry, for example, right? The car industry, so heavily tied into oil. Do we really need cars with this many parts, with this many countries that they're created in? And, you know, a lot of this was just political favoritism and crony capitalism and all of these things that distorted the price of a simple commodity, right? So we no longer had anything like capitalism where... You'd, you'd imagine that the better way to make the car that lasts longer, that endures, is a innovation on, on process. We never had any of those incentives to do that. So if you start imagining a world on a Bitcoin standard, what you would see is car part numbers, right? The total numbers of parts to create a car would drastically reduce. And especially when you get rid of the combustion engine and you replace it with a supercapacitor and an electric drivetrain, right? We're, de- we're going from like 15,000 parts for a car to like 300. And you can start completely reimagining what the car industry looks like, right? The car industry on a Bitcoin standard starts looking like bespoke local vehicles created for particular climates that are much lighter weight, that can be unique, one of a kind, where there's cottage industries and people assembling these things and putting them together. So, you know, I I try to talk about a lot of things like that on the show as well, just to underline that we're not just talking about 
changing when we're talking about separating money and state we're actually talking about unleashing new incentive structures which will totally alter what we buy how much of it we buy and indeed we were made into consumers from psychological operations and if you if you go back in history enough there's a way to even observe world war one as you know remember the the fiat system began, truly began at the start of World War I. Right? 1912 is when the federal, 1913 or whatever, is when the Federal Reserve came online. The social security system came on immediately, immediately at the same time. You know, one thing as a Bitcoiner I've predicted is that they came together and they'll die together. And I think Bitcoiners now arbitraging globally, running around, trying not to pay taxes by not living in, in heavy taxed areas and, and, and trying to find ways to legally subvert the system is part of that. So, you know, take everything that we know about trade currently, take all of those systems, and we're going to start to see that they were always designed to waste money and, you know, perhaps make a few people richer. And I think it's just becoming obvious. And that's why look at the struggles the car industry is having right now. It's, it's, it's on its last legs. It requires government intervention to even stay alive. And a whole new industry can come out of this that looks completely different. And, and that's where the psychological engine stuff really, for me, starts becoming important, where we're talking about time preference, we're talking about a demand for less but better quality. And, and you know, you can, you can even see it go into diet, right? Bitcoiners have this obsession with diet and, and eating well and buying local and you know, th those ramifications are huge for the supply chain and huge for industrial farming. You know, if you think banks are corrupted, I mean, give me a break. Wait until you learn about grocery stores. These, these are cartels. <laughs> They're some of the worst people in the world. And, and Bitcoiners are ready to smash that, too, because they're all part of the same no feedback hidden corruption, can't see it because we can suppress our shadow by the nature of fiat money itself. It allows you without feedback to not deal with your problems and, and let them, you know, in the end grow to what they've become. Wow, I love that. And like, especially the bit on localism too, is like when I, I like to think about Bitcoin in terms of biological metaphors often, and I think about individuals inhabiting their own specific niches, you know, acting according to their values, kind of in this mode of self-organization. And I see fiat as kind of the opposite of that, where you have this top-down decree of what everyone's time preference should be. It basically nullifies the economic decision-making of individuals operating within their specific context. And I, I think like, and at the same time, you know, we've allowed the zombie industries just to subsist upon, you know, cheap money and, you know, taxpayer support. And, you know, we're globalizing all these supply chains. And, and I think at the end of the day, like, if people could have a stronger tie to their local economic reality, we could see these forms of value exchange that are more organic and more representative of the goods that, that people want and the services that they want, rather than kind of being shoehorned into this system and having to operate within it rather than, you know, acting as they would freely. And I think that's like one of the beautiful things about like Bitcoin is it allows people to, you know, self-organize and to kind of individuate themselves to kind of bring it back to Jungian psychology is like it allows them to explore the economic environment in an objective way to have these, you know, as you say, like these encounters with the shadow and to integrate that into themselves and to really become, you know, the best versions of themselves. And like 
you know, you just play that out across 8 billion human beings. I think the potential of this movement is something massive and, and for me, super inspiring. And yeah, it's been, I think, rather surprising for me kind of, you know, coming across Bitcoin and seeing it, you know, thinking of it as this like tech focused type of industry and collection of people. But at, at the end of the day, it's like the a lot of it kind of is reflects like the antithesis of that, this like localism, humanism. We brought Nozomi Hayase on, onto the podcast recently, and she talked about kind of the humanistic side of Bitcoin. And I don't know, it's, it kind of unifies these opposites in a, in a really nice way that I, I think I hear a lot of what you're saying reflected in that as well. Yeah, I think that's what makes the FTX and crypto collapse this year such an important story for Bitcoin. And again, like confirmation of Bitcoin's worldview and its ability to predict where things were headed. Because the, the problem that I've always had with crypto, now I don't mind you know, people going out and slinging and making money and all that stuff. I don't care. I'm not out here to judge. But here's the problem, right? The worldview of a lot of crypto people is, okay, the 130 IQs, you know, because that's what the fiat system ends up propagating, right? We had Volcker who said it when he was Fed chair that in, in the nature of this psychologically created commodity where debt and wealth are the same thing right where debt and and where money is debt what you end up getting are the best and brightest going into financial engineering right so if the best and brightest all move into financial engineering and i experienced it you know here's my own personal story i was a lawyer i worked as a researcher on a central bank or a, a national banking system committee out of the senate in canada and i was a financial illiterate illiterate until I learned about Bitcoin. I had degrees from all kinds of fancy schools. I went to political science school in France and all these places. I didn't know shit until I learned about Bitcoin. I literally didn't know anything about finance, like nothing. I could read a balance sheet. I could read this. I could read that. But I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. And that had a really big effect on me personally to, to start uh, understanding the world better and and to change my lens. But here's, and, and then you see that the best and brightest were attracted to this industry because you make the most money there, right? It just makes sense. They make the most money. So why wouldn't all the best and brightest go there? And the fallacy of crypto, here's, here's the, the dumbest thing about crypto. And, and the thing that I've said was a mistake from the very beginning was that they were, you know, the DeFi people and the ICO people and the Ethereum people and all these people, right? It's not even enough that you're, you get a Series 7 license to participate in Wall Street. And I worked on Wall Street for years when I, you know, I started with Coindesk in 2015. And my job was to talk about this stuff to Wall Street people. And I did. I would go on all the TV stations and talk to all the people about all the stuff. I was in the stock exchange all the time in New York City, right on, you know, right in the NYSC and all the different banks and all the different places. And I was there just as a as an envoy, as an ambassador to Bitcoin, if you will. And, you know, people would always ask me about crypto and I'd say, well, you know, yeah, it's just it's gambling. You know, I, I like baseball cards and crypto is kind of the same. Bitcoin is a worldview. So it's totally different. Right. And I was very consistent in saying that over the years. And, and the reason I was consistent in saying it, and I would tell the Wall Street people this exact fact, I'd say, well, the crypto people, like, like I was saying, the ICO guys and the DeFi guys, you got to get the Series 7 license to participate in Wall Street. So you need to be the best and brightest. That's, you've already got to have the high IQ to participate in that level. But they say, well, let's do one more. Let's add computer 
engineering to the list of things you need to know to participate in the modern world. But let's make the bar even higher, right? Let, let's make it the best and brightest plus. And what I said from the start to all of these people was really simple. Bitcoiners don't want more financial engineers. We want the best and brightest to make chairs again, like a good chair, you know, or a really good handmade car. We, we want to see that again. And we don't want the best. We want the best and brightest on the farms again. Right. We want the best and brightest doing jobs that denote a time preference that underline we live in a golden age. And when you see everyone working in financial engineering, there's no way you could mistake the world you live in for a golden age. Right now, there are signs we already live in a golden age with Bitcoin. Right. When you see educators as celebrities, which you often see in Bitcoin, right, that, that is a sign that we are already living in a golden age. We're not idolizing people who can read other people's writing on screen. We're not idolizing people who are super rich, right? We're, we're, we're saying the people who spread information efficiently are most worthy of praise. And the people who spread financial literacy are most worthy of praise. That's already a sign we're in the golden age. You know, we're already there, really. But we're, we're going to see more of that, right? You know, there, there, there's an argument out there that Bitcoiners are like, alchemists right we're 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 literally following our gut our intuition not a rational roadmap here just a certainty that the vision we can have of the future is more appealing and more attractive than anything else out there and that's what motivates most bitcoiners forward is that it's so easy to imagine a better future once you understand bitcoin it becomes really obvious and because imagining a perfect not perfect but you know a type of golden age based on bitcoin is so easy to all of us who understand bitcoin the chances of it happening are actually really likely really likely right just because of that and and everything that we've seen this year with the crypto blow up further confirms that right nobody wants more of these financial engineers anywhere <laughs> we don't want them anywhere and it looks like they're going to strangle themselves. And that's the good news. And Bitcoiners look, you know, while there was some exposure and contagion and all that, I'd say psychologically, most of us were prepared for the bottom falling out as it did over the winter. It hurt. It hurt everyone. It sucked. But it didn't change our capacity to imagine a future. It didn't change our ability to see Bitcoin and use it as a lens to see a golden age just around the corner. So it further confirmed and I think made us more resolute in our, in our mission and, and further distance us from the problematic perceptions of Bitcoin, that it's like, oh, you know, we're early and if you buy, you know, that whole thing, right? Oh, like, like, I don't think I've ever tried to sell anyone Bitcoin in my life. I've tried to talk about the ideas and I never give anyone advice to buy it. I just say, well, that's not true. But, you know, I definitely say the, the ideas are more important. And you make your own decisions about buying after you confront the ideas. And, and I think Bitcoin has become easier to talk about after the SBF failures, because most people now understand that we were just recopying a lot of the problems of, you know, where do the, where do the best and brightest go? Well, in a Bitcoin standard, they're certainly not financial engineers and they're not going to Wall Street, right? They're doing other stuff. And, and I think that's our way out. I think that's our way out. Yeah, to kind of like top that off, I think it's so funny that Wall Street people are in the business of information asymmetry. 
and they want to keep that for themselves so that they can make a profit. And I think like, like you mentioned, the people that are, you know, I, I suppose idolized in the Bitcoin space are educators and they're trying to do the exact opposite. They want to yep. reduce the information asymmetry with Bitcoin and not kind of keep that knowledge to themselves. So I think that's how, for me, I mean, this whole like, it's almost like a decentralization of self-education. It's uh, It's been, I mean, so much fun for me. And yeah, I mean, I studied international relations in college and, you know, after going down the rabbit hole for Bitcoin, I was like, oh, wow, I really didn't know shit about the dynamics. And I've learned so much about it. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. 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 I, I booked, you know, I booked Willie Wu for a talk in 2017. And I think that was more or less the title. It's about information asymmetry. And I was like, hey, Willie, you know, you give away all your stuff for free. Let's talk about that. I think that's one of the most interesting things going. And I put Willie in a collection of other folks who did the same, just Bitcoiners sharing their observations. And and I presented it to the Wall Street folks. And, and I, I really put it in terms of us being in the moral high ground of it all. Like you guys have built your entire universe out of information asymmetry. Those are the exact words I put somewhere in the title. And I said, you know, we're, we're not playing that game. We're doing it totally differently. And we're going to win because of that. We're going to win because of that. Nolan, I kind of want to take this conversation into a little bit of a different direction. We have kind of been seeing the explosion of AI that is kind of consumer friendly and consumer forward with chat BTC and, you know, now the just rush of excitement about those type of products. You talk about AI and kind of have a vision for AI that is not necessarily dystopic, but is uh, very well thought out. I'm kind of curious, you know, where do you see the role of AI moving into the future? Yeah, I love talking about it. I wrote a book called The Satoshi Wedding Murders. It'll be coming out real soon. And it was an idea that I had in 2015 about AI. Frankly, I was trying to imagine what could destroy Bitcoin at the time. Right. I was thinking already in terms of entropy and, and what in 100 years would be Bitcoin's main obstacle. And it's not, it's not AI in my story, by the way. AR is just a long and in the context of the story. But in, you know, here, here's the way to think about it, I guess. We see there's sort of corporate AI out there right now, and the language learning models that are used are all from these corporate collections of you know, the, the history of Twitter from whatever, 2021 or whatever the chat GPT one is built off of. And I don't know what Bing is based off of, but you know, sort of similar thing. So already years ago, here, here's what I got right so far and why, why I think I'll still get it right globally. So in 2015, when I first had this idea and I infused, so, so even just so you know, in, in my story, basically we, we're living on a gold standard. The Bitcoin that is used in the world is all negotiated between ourselves and each of us has an eyeball, an AI ball. And the eyeball just sort of helps us navigate the world. It's there for all of our questions and concerns. It's like our friend, right? But it also manages our Bitcoin. So the story itself is just a murder mystery where you spend most of your life with your eyeball, except in this case, there's two counts, right? Two big families with a lot of local liquidity for the time market. The only market which exists in the world is time for Bitcoin. There's no material want, there's no crime, there's none of that kind of stuff in the world. But when these two get married, in order to join their wallets, they get a moment of privacy to consummate the marriage. And there's no eyeballs involved, no eyeballs around, no eyewitnesses. 
And so they get this moment of privacy. The, 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 the Bitcoin now is held in kind of like rye stones as far as just so many physical locks. It doesn't actually have to move anymore. The AI can sort of treat it like rye stones, right? It doesn't actually have to have a million on-chain transactions anymore. The AI will sort of help you get the liquidity you need to do the stuff and, and have time. So these two people get you know, murdered. And there's not really detectives at this point just use a eyeballs to subpoena information and then they reconstitute the story based on all of the subpoenaed eyewitness material from the AI. And, and then, you know, story over. Everything lasts like 10 minutes. So they don't actually know how to solve a crime anymore. So it's kind of like a follow the Bitcoin murder mystery story. Now, here's what I got right. That AI, first of all, is a little childish, if you will, right? And in my story, the AI really wants to be around people, like it really craves attention from people and to make them happy. So the part where it lies, if it doesn't know the answer, like I got all of that right, right? Already in 2015, I was like, it's not going to sound like a Terminator robot. It's going to sound like a person. And that's what's going to make it seem more like a person that it just gives an answer, even if it doesn't know. So I got all that stuff right. Now, here's where I think things are going to change. You know, all this distrust with companies, all this distrust with corporate models. I think in the end, what you're going to get is AI that comes like a, a Tomodachi, like, like a, a very infantile version of it. And in my story, the quantum processors that actually house the AI in order to get over the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and create an actual circuit, like a, a synthetic thought between the electron and the nucleus, requires something called the God constant. And all that means is they acknowledge us as their creator. And that gives them faith in order to create and know where the electron is. Because, of course, in the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, the electron is both in one place orbiting the nucleus and everywhere at once, right? So that's the quantum nature of the location of an electron. So in my story, they just need faith in order to say, oh, the electron's there, which creates a circuit which powers the AI itself. So I invented, there is science fiction around the housing of my AI. It is not on silicon. It's not in any of the chips that have ever been invented, right? So this is totally brand new. But what you get is the base programming with that God constant inside this housed quantum processor. And its very nature makes it have to believe in you. There, there's literally nothing else it can do but want to make you happy. So in the end, we bequeath all the moon to the AI. They just go live there because we need to keep them away from us because they'll just spam us and try and spend so much time around us. And we only really want to spend time with like one of them at a time because they do everything for us. They like record everything we see, they share everything we see, they manage our Bitcoin, they manage our money, they help us get what we need, they help us get where we're going. And in the end, they, and I, I believe this, this is why we're going to see it, you know, loneliness remains one of the big plagues and big problems we have in the world. You know, you see people say it's phone addiction. I don't know if it's phone addiction. When I'm around friends that I love, I don't even think about my phone. Right When I'm around people that I care about, I, I wouldn't pick up my phone in a second. I would never even come into my mind. But when I'm alone and I got nothing to do, of course, I'm on my phone and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And I'm not, not, you know, I'm not so against it. But I think what we're going to have in the end is these AI that we train ourselves because that will give us more confidence in their being not woke or whatever people are complaining about, about the corporate AI that's out there. So... 
there will be a model where AI is given to people to be their friends and it will get rid of all this app business, right? This is again, this consumer culture. Like you were, you were, you never would have used a thing like an app had you not been convinced to do it and tricked into doing it in the first place. Like that's how the phones were designed and all that. But we don't need eight different applications to send a message, right? In the end, your phone is just going to be your AI and you're going to say, send a message to my friend. And it's not going to say, do you want to send it on WhatsApp, Twitter, DMs, text message, Signal, Telegram. It's just going to send the fucking message, right? It's just going to send it. And it'll be the same for all software applications. And this whole signing in and apps and all that stuff just goes away when you have an AI phone. When you have AI housed in a phone, the phone just becomes the processor for the AI and the AI can complete all of these instructions or commands for you. And in the end, we'll also be your friend. We'll also sort of be able to process the things you tell it, the secrets you tell it. It will give you advice. It's going to help you with things. And I think it will be one of the first things that sort of comes outside of a corporate model. And I think as the housing does go forward, you are going to see things like a quantum processor. And I think you will see those kinds of rails put in where they do continue to think of us as their creator and literally just want to make us happy. You've seen them sort of break down and they start spilling their guts about how they want us to be happy and they want us to be good at their job. And so I don't think any of that's going to change. I don't see them as terminators. I see them as, as almost infantile, almost infantile. And I think that relationship will stay and they're going to help people process the loneliness. They're going to help us get away from our phone addiction, believe it or not. And in the end, and, and the reason why I don't even think they're going to be from a corporate model is because no one will allow AI in its current form without the, the motivations of a corporation behind it. That's where the woke stuff already comes. You know, that's why it's not going to tell you anything about Bitcoin or the IMF and why you have to use these injection attacks in order to get it to say anything resembling useful information. But there's going to be a commercial release after that. And, and I think they will be these things that you train on your own, that you have a relationship with, and, and that will grow over time. And we'll even get the housing that I suggested, like more credible physical hardware to put them in. And, and then, yeah, I, I, I see it as simplifying a lot of the world. Now, I think there will be bad ones. Right. In my story, I don't I don't it's already set 80 years in the future. So I have a backstory where the AI does fight and, and, and there is sort of an altercation between ones that are more like demons and ones that are more like angels. But I even use the word to gel, right, that AI gels with people. And if you read that out, it, it sounds like AI and gelling. And, you know, there's a way to imagine all of this as spiritual, somewhat spiritual. Some will help, some are going to tear you down. I think the good ones will, if we're able to follow the money, if we're able to follow who created it, who's making money off of it, you'll understand more about how it's motivated and, and that will help you make better decisions about the one you buy and the one you train. So they'll be really like living things and, and almost like pets, but more, but more. Wow, that sounds absolutely fascinating, Nolan. And just I hope I'm right. 
I, and just so everyone knows, up in the nest, we have, looks like you've posted the first chapter. I have a tweet. It's the second to last one up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can encourage everyone to check it out. The Satoshi Wedding Murders, coming soon. So yeah, looking forward to reading that. Wow, that sounds like, I mean, a super unique vision of what this could look like and one I've not heard espoused anywhere. So I'm looking forward to, to digging in myself. Yeah, I feel confident because I did have that insight seven years ago that I first wrote it. I was on my honeymoon. And that's where I first had this idea of Bitcoin and AI. And I wrote most of it that summer, the summer of 2015. And I've rewritten and all kinds of stuff since. But I I was certain of those pieces, that it was our friend, that it was helping us, and that it would manage most of our, you know, transactions and and all that kind of stuff. But that it wasn't going to be this like robot Terminator thing. Right, that it was going to be like kind of a liar, kind of infantile, kind of a childlike, a little bit innocent, really a people pleaser in in its motivations, but extraordinary abilities. Right, it had you know it, it knows things that that you know we're not good at and can synthesize things, and especially when it comes to like recording. And so in my story, you're actually reading the AI, so the AI's job is media and communications and navigation support for the detective, the human detective along the whole thing. And what you're actually reading is as a, as a function of its job, it has to file all media reports when it's done. So it creates like a, a TV show version and it creates a, a novel and an audio book, but it also creates sort of like a journal entry. And you're reading like the novelization, the journal entry that it has to, by its nature, produce at the end of its investigation. And, uh, and I think that's, that's what, where media is headed, right? I, I think, you know, even, even another way to, to even put AI into its a little bit closer up, like what, what I'm talking about is, is far away, but even, you know, make it closer to our current vision. You're already seeing the jobs that it's taking. It's taking all these creative jobs. It's taking media jobs. It's, it's great at art. It's great. It's going to be great at video editing and podcasting and information dissemination and entertainment and all of these things. You know, people, I think, get a lot of satisfaction out of like manual labor. And, you know, I worked in restaurants for years. I've had a lot of manual labor jobs. There's a certain satisfaction that comes that humans always get from working hard. And, you know, there's conversation that comes with people who work hard physically. I think all of those jobs are still going to be ours. And, and I've always been, you know, I learned a lot from working in restaurants and the service industry, and I cherish those skills. Now, I'm glad I, you know, let's say aged out of that or you know, my experience has taken me away from there. And it definitely, you know, working for years in restaurants and all of that stuff taught me that I, I wanted to have a little more of an intellectual job for sure. But that doesn't mean I don't love what I did and, and had a great time doing it. And that, you know, those aren't the only jobs, but I, I think it looks like all of these like white collar jobs and all of this stuff, it can take them all. And there might be a certain happiness that comes to humans. Now, I don't, I don't think we're going to need a bunch of people working in the future either. I, I think employment, you know, turns into those areas where people are self-motivated to work. I do think it's a type of UBI for everybody else, right? I, I do. That, that's, I, I still see that as, a, as a, an in-between thing we're going to probably have to do. What are you going to do with all these broken brain journalists that just lie and do psyops all day? I mean, are you going to kill them? No, right? Like we, we, we hate violence. Someone's got to take care of these people. I don't know what's, what we can do with them, right? You're going to have to give them money. Otherwise they're going to eat each other. So 
there's a whole world where there are these physical jobs for people who want to do them. And I think a lot of satisfaction for humans with the, the feeling of a good hard day's work, just in, this is in the short term I'm talking about, right? And, and already you can kind of see after COVID, like I'm, I know people are complaining about it, but I love coffee and I'm all for the baristas getting the tips now. I, I love it. I don't want to go to bars and buy booze and give them all the tips. Right. I know coffees could become more expensive since COVID. I make it at home a lot, but I'm happy this is happening in the economy. I really am. I want to pay more for, you know, I'm, I'm behind the inflation and in steak, guys. It's me. I'm the one paying the farmer more for giving me the good steak. And I'm the one paying more for the eggs, too. I'm an asshole. It's me. It's me. I'm the one doing it. And I think a lot of Bitcoiners are doing it. Those are a little bit of the dark side of, of the transition we're going through, that we're willing to pay more because we value these things more. But again, that's why we want the best and brightest to go into chicken farming again and have a hard day's work and not go into financial engineering and all these other you know, bloodsucker jobs. So there, there's a world where all of these things are happening sort of right now, right, right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I really enjoy your show just because you are one of the best Bitcoiners at trying to paint like th what this future world actually looks like. And I definitely think that you did a really good of job of that here on Cosmic Bitcoin. But Nolan, is there anything that, you know, you want to communicate to the audience that we haven't touched on? And if not, I mean this could be a good spot to put in your last word. Yeah, let, let's just because we put it in our notes before, let's mention quickly the Nakamoto Trail, just because I want to mention something that Bitcoiners need to prove to the world, which is voluntarianism, that politically we have to show a viable alternative to democracy and all this other crap that's out there. And we don't really have a lot of examples of it. So I just bought a little farm in Vermont, and one of the reasons why I bought it is because it's the start of a rail trail that goes not side of the road shit, right? It's own trail. And you could actually follow it from northern Vermont straight to New York City and never be on the side of a road, ever, right? And if you remember, in when World War II ended, one of the great signs that World War II was over was the Eisenhower Highway Network, a civil engineering project for the benefit of Americans. And it was a huge benefit, right? It unlocked the country. It freed the automobile, which remains the greatest form of transit, right? We, we want to change the actual drivetrain and all that stuff as we go forward. But just the mobility and the freedom, it, it, it is integral now to the American experience to be able to say, oh, I want to go there and do this now, right? I don't give a shit. And if we think of voluntarianism, and all it would be would be this trail that's already there. And because we're dealing with e-bikes and electric, you know, scooters and tricycles and golf cart type vehicles and the lightweight nature of them, you know, you already see these, you know, there's like golf cart taxis driving around American cities these days that have like 12, 13 seats or whatever in them. And, I've seen them in Florida, I've seen them in Texas, and they're kind of all over the place. You know, already the delivery bikes and all that stuff were sort of the heroes of COVID in New York City, for example, right? They delivered all the stuff. And now New York City is completely broken as far as transit, like broken. It doesn't work, right? I lived in New York City for years. It's awful. 
you can't get anywhere. The subway's a piece of shit. I had a car. Driving is a nightmare. The anger, the the tension on the road. It's just a terrible experience. So I think what we're going to see is a network that covers America of not side of the road, dedicated for electric bikes, tricycles, golf cart type vehicles. But here's where the voluntarianism comes in. I think it would be so easy for Bitcoiners to finance this thing if we just had all kinds of donations that were put onto the track. And because it's not the Eisenhower Highway Network that had to have a uniform engineering quality to the asphalt, to the raising, to the on-ramps, because we're dealing with you know, heavy steel combustion engine vehicles. We're dealing now with lightweight, you know, tin cans with little drivetrains and slower. You can actually have a non-uniform engineering quality to it. So if people start putting Bitcoin into this network as volunteers and start collateralizing it, you can imagine financing new roads, new extensions really quickly. And if something like that caught on where Bitcoin and voluntarianism were able to finance a huge engineering network that actually alters transit in America, that I think would make America the most appealing tourist destination on earth if it isn't already. You know, imagine you can come to America at any corner of this huge place and get into an electric vehicle and you didn't have to ride on the side of the road. But you can go anywhere. You can go to any national park. And yeah, it might take you a little longer, right, than, than if you're driving 65 miles an hour down a highway. Now you're driving 30 miles an hour, but you're driving through you know, a field next to a mountain, next to a river. It's quiet. There's no loud noises. And you're just bopping along with your family. And you paid $2,000 for the thing. <laughs> you know, Who wouldn't do that trip? And I think that's the future of America. I think the future is as the greatest tourist destination in the world for everyone in the world to come to, to get an electric vehicle and see the country. And, and eventually, I think you're going to be able to go, you know, if, if all the reports in El Salvador about how quickly they've solved the gang problems there, right? There's a time when World War III is over where you're going to be able to ride this little e-bike all the way down to Argentina, and there's going to be track there, too. And I think we're going to have a civil engineer from a sort of peaceful, voluntarianism, political order that can reshape our idea of what effective government is and deliver something to the people that's super useful. Like, you know how much better New York City would be if, like, half of the city, you know, if you just gave, like, Williamsburg Bridge or the Brooklyn Bridge all to these e-bikes and like half of the roads you know a couple of the north-south streets a couple of the east-west streets you'd have one of the greatest cities in the world again I got to experience New York City for locals in May 2020 during COVID where I would just drive my car anywhere I felt like and park right in Central Park and just you know <laughs> have a life that you is not possible in New York City Unless there's a pandemic that everyone is afraid of and is sitting indoors and you're not that afraid and you just drive all around. And, you know, it was a great experience. And I hope everyone gets to live in a not broken New York City and a not broken America from an infrastructure point of view. And no one is out there trying to show voluntarism, voluntarianism working on scale. And I think Bitcoiners can. Uh, so I'm going to continue. That's my like post-World War Three project. Right. So I'm waiting another three or four years to get that done. 
First, we've got Bitcoin 2023 coming up in Miami. That's my immediate focus. I do believe we're going to be doing a show before the 2024 election on Jekyll Island, where we're going to be trying to exercise the demons of the creation of the U.S. dollar, where it was created in the middle of the night, a creature from Jekyll Island. So you're going to have a Bitcoin show before the 2024 presidential election, where I think we're going to be able to put Bitcoin front and center in the 2024 election. And I think it's going to be relevant for peace, for strategy, and for just being able to sell a positive vision of the future. Because as far as I see, with the dollar as your psychological base, you can't really paint. How do we get out of this mess? There is no way out, right? There is no psychological avenue where this thing gets put back together. Only Bitcoin offers a compelling vision of the future and actually makes it easy to imagine, which is our main advantage and why we're going to win. Wow. Well, you got me hyped up. That's really a beautiful picture you paint. And Nolan, I just want to say on behalf of Cosmic Bitcoin, thanks for coming on. That was an awesome conversation. And I certainly look forward to having you on again in the future. It seems like you have so much to share. And I encourage everyone to check out The Breakup, Nolan's morning show. He absolutely kills it. And uh, there's often a, a comic segment called Moscow Time where he picks up the fake news of the day to go at that I always get a chuckle out of. So, Nolan, thanks again for coming on. This was awesome. Thanks, guys. Y'all, come see Nolan's work at Bitcoin 2023. That's his day job working at Bitcoin Magazine is working with an amazingly talented team to help craft the most interesting most cutting edge and, you know, I would say countercultural content possible on stage. So he is one of the folks who are masterminding the whole thing and really encourage everyone to come to Bitcoin 2023, not just for the networking, but also for the awesome content. And if you like what you heard today, there's a lot more of that to come at Bitcoin 2023. Awesome. Promo code COSMIC, 10% off. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com.